Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the houses, farms and plantations of figures such as George Washington and Lord Edward Fitzgerald to explore how revolutionary ideas were translated into landscape design, encompassing liberty, equality and improvement, and how the issue of slavery affected those designs as well. We'll also find out about the Bristol bus boycott, the Grunwick strike and the fight for change in Britain. And then to end the show, we'll investigate the contradictions in economic nationalism, looking at case studies around the world. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we explored the history of men and women in space and found out why we stopped going to the moon and whether we might ever land on Mars. We also investigated the Irish policy of King James I and talked to Donald Fallon about the lamplighters of Phoenix Park. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud or website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the links between landscape design and revolution in Ireland and the United States. Spanning the designed landscapes of England's glorious revolution of 1688, the American Revolution of 1776 and the Irish Rebellion of 1798, with some detours into revolutionary France, a new book traces a comparative history of property structures and landscape design across the 18th century Atlantic world and involving concepts of plantation and improvement within imperial ideology. And it investigates how the new republics and revolutionaries translated their principles into spatial form. The book is called Landscape Design and Revolution in Ireland and the United States, 1688 to 1815. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press. The author is Fanola O'Kane. And Fanola, you're very welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. So let's talk about the origins of this book, because I think it began with a trip that you did to uh, George Washington's estate in Mount Vernon. Yes, um, quite a while ago now, I took a trip um, down the Chesapeake um, to Mount Vernon to look at his plantation, mansion and plantation. Um, I had done a lot of work myself on 18th century landscape design in Ireland, um, which is, of course, within the kind of British tradition. Um, And I was uh, somewhat very, I was very confused, essentially, because I couldn't read the landscape the way I have been, I suppose, trained um, to to read the landscapes here and in our neighbouring island. And that set you off on this voyage then that has resulted in this absolutely beautiful, splendid production by Yale University Press. You know, it's a large hardback and it has uh, beautiful illustrations and it really captures uh, what was happening in these different uh, countries and situations. But did you crack the code then at Mount Vernon about what was confusing you? You know, why was it designed in that way? And uh, what was the explanation for these different aspects? Well, eventually, really, I mean, the principal difference is that in Ireland and Great Britain and Europe more generally, we, we tenant out land. So, so the great landlords um, or, or magnates have, own many thousands of acres, but they don't farm them directly themselves. Um, they had tenant farmers and they might hold a core of domain land, which might be, you know, in Carton, for example, it's 1,000 acres. Um, that's a ducal kind of property, a scale of 1,000 acres. Um, now, in the States, it was very different. A lot of these um, founding fathers um, were also surveyors. They were speculating in land, so they accumulated very large areas very quickly. A lot of that was bought through head rights, so you were allowed to buy land in proportion in the South to the number of slaves that you owned. So someone like George Washington is amassing kind of 50,000 acres around Mount Vernon. So that's, and that's all in his own hand, as they would say in the 18th century. You know, he, he didn't, there are no tenant farmers, essentially, or there are very few, there are, there are a few. Um, so that creates a very different kind of landscape structure. And that's what was confusing about it for me. So Mount Vernon has five plantations, essentially. 
around the mansion house farm. And George Washington is very interesting in his letters because he's always trying to not use the word plantation and try to use the word farm, especially in letters to Europe, um, because plantation had negative connotations by that point. You know, they, they were really um, slave plantations. Um, so that, that was the key problem is, is that it's, ma- it's made, it's a kind of composite structure of um, plantations and at the core is the mansion house farm. And again, because Washington was such a public figure, he had lots and lots of European visitors. So what's also present in the design of Mount Vernon is a degree of concealment um, so that when you approach the house, there's really only one way to approach it, which is very different from, say, Carton again, or any Irish domain where there would be a few and there would be a hierarchy of approaches. They really only want important people to come one way so that they don't see the uncomfortable parts of the plantation, which are the the, the slave plantations where he had lots of enslaved workers with drivers over them, um, where a degree of violence was definitely necessary to keep everyone working. Um, George Washington was definitely not the worst planter and was trying to to create, he wrote to Arthur Young, trying to create a well-ordered farm in the English fashion where he was going to change it, he was going to get tenants. He never managed to do that, but he was deeply uncomfortable with the fact that his wealth and his prosperity and his identity were totally tied to the enslavement um, of many hundreds of people at Mount Vernon. And that's incredible the way they're rigging the the view that you have of it. They're fixing it so that you're coming in the nice entrance and you're and you're not seeing the harsh realities, the brutal realities of, of slavery. And and is there that tension and contradiction then between the revolutionary ideas of the of the of the American Revolution and and Washington becoming the first president, and then the tension is the contradiction is that so many of them were slave owners and that they are defending this this brutal principle. Yeah, well, and principle there for liberty, you know, not so much it's not framed liberty and freedom are the core kind of 1776 concepts. Um, The French bring in equality much more forcefully, I think. But still, the American Constitution, they're wonderful documents which are, you know, highly idealistic. So they were conscious that that, that contradictions existed within the United States. Most obviously, I think, the American planters in the South. And that becomes particularly clear, actually, in one figure who's Pierce Butler um, from County Carlow, who becomes the first senator of Georgia, who, who was an American revolutionary, originally a British officer, but became an American revolutionary. And he then writes a series of letters to Europe where he's trying to excuse slavery to his Irish and British relations. And through those letters, you can really see um, the degree of contradiction where on one side, you're trying to be a revolution revolutionary or you're very pro-France, you're very pro-executing the king, for example. You're very um, trying to remove all forms of deference or entitlement, you know, absolutely enraged that as a second son he had to leave Carlo, you know, and didn't inherit anything. So a lot of these revolutionaries in their past have have had, especially if they emigrated from Europe, rather than the homegrown revolutionaries like Washington. Someone like Butler has escaped Europe, essentially, because um, because of this sense of entitlement that's implicit in, you know, all European monarchies at the, that time. So they've escaped that. But at the same time, to become a wealthy um, individual in the States, the easiest way to do that is to go south to speculate in land and to develop um plantations with lots of enslaved workers. But some people didn't do that. And I think that's very important as well. Some people stayed in the north. Um, and we have one wonderful um, United Archibald Hamilton Rowan who writes very clearly, I will not go south. You know, I will not I will not keep slaves. And this is important because it means that there was a degree of choice. I mean, there's always this rhetoric that comes back at you if you work at um, the slavery or the 18th century that, you know, everyone was doing it. It was part of the culture. It was in the ethos. And why are you making such a fuss, you know? Um, and, and then you get the clarity of someone like Archibald Hamilton Rowan writing, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to enrich myself by going south. I'm going to stay in the north. And eventually then he goes home to Ireland because he's uncomfortable generally in the United States. But, but I think that's very important that there are people making clear moral choices in the 18th century, despite, yes, a much more general tolerance of all these, um, of enslavement, of, you know, of property, of entitlement, of aristocracy. Yes, there was, but uh, but there is a very great degree of clarity about the principles of liberty, equality and fraternity and what they mean. And 
and, and it's sometimes salutary to read them from today because there's a clarity also in, in the originating documents, you know, the very powerful foundation documents for the, the United States and um, for France and then the United Irishmen in Ireland. Yeah, so you can't excuse it all away saying, of course, this is what everyone believed and no one knew any difference because some clearly did know very differently and were aware of the moral implications. Yeah, I mean, very clearly within within the, I use a lot of letters because, again, personal letters are very revealing, um, especially between kind of equals like brothers or cousins and um, very much less equal, I suppose, between a manager and a, a planter. Um, but at the same time, you know, they're try- they're making that it's so new that the United States is so new and it's such a, a wonderful concept in its birth. Um, and there is this kind of sense of tragedy that uh, that automatically it, it's kind of overpowered by the contradictions um, that that legal concepts actually have generated. You know, the, this idea again of head rights, the fact that slaves were entailed to the land. I mean, there's enormous irony in the fact that when they break the concept of entailment, you know, that the slaves can't be moved off the land, that they're entailed, rather like property is entailed to particular estates in Great Britain. Or um, when they break that concept, when Jefferson and the others break that concept, that means that the slaves can be sold individually. So the families are then able to be broken up. And there's enormous tragedy there's enormous tragedy in in something as wonderful as removing forms of deference and entitlement, but at the same time, other legal concepts move then to kind of make it worse for some of the population. And it's that section of the sector of the population, which, you know, in the late 18th century in Georgia, 90% approximately of the population are enslaved. You know, it's enormous um, demographic figures of enslaved people. Um, and those are the people who are really suffering from... Ironically, the breaking of some European concepts, and actually, the in one one of the key letters also is Louis, or the next King of France. Eventually, after the revolution, does a very interesting tour of the United States, and he notices very quickly that this is going to be a problem, you know, and says they should really reintroduce entailment because it would be much better for the slaves if they were attached to the land, and they couldn't be sold off one by one. The children separated from their mothers one by one on places like racecourses, you know, where they do the big sales in the American South, and which are very hard to imagine today. Just the the level of cruelty that matrilineal chattel slavery created. So how did a farm look then in the north when there wasn't slavery, where there wasn't slavery? And and do you get a sense that there is a different approach to landscape design north than south? Well, yeah, I think the north effectively comes out of the Puritan Protestant tradition. You know, there's a lot of radical, um, very religious people who set up, you know, colonies like Pennsylvania. I mean, there are other people involved as well, but but it's much more smallholder. Um, they don't tend to take large amounts of money. The the, the wealthy kind of emigrants from Europe, um, who are not morally um, worried about things, let's say, um, they tend to realise that going south would would be the better financial prospect. Um, but and in the north, in Pennsylvania, they tend to be smaller, picket fenced, you know, small farmhouses. They don't own. Um, people, so they, they don't have that headright concept where the number of acres you get is in proportional to the number of people that you can use to farm it. Now, if you have a lot of children um, in the South, you, m- you might be able to build an estate. But the easiest way to build a vast kind of European aristocratic estate, which is really what the American South is modelling itself on, is to buy a lot of enslaved people as quickly as possible. And so I think it's a combination of Puritan values where, where slavery, you know, would, would be a problem. Um, and then also, I, th- I suppose, a degree of comfort in actually having enough um, and not wanting to lord it over other people um, not wanting to have a hierarchy again to the same extent. So purer form of values. And that then is reflected in the landscape. You get a much more mixed farming. You don't get monoculture, so you don't get large plantations devoted to one crop um, like you do in the South. Uh, I mean, the South's very interesting because how do you make tobacco fields look picturesque? You know, how do you cut them out of the picture? Because it's really impossible to make... um, Tobacco and and the speed with which tobacco is is harvested and then leaches the soil. You know there are certain crops which look so. So just in terms of aesthetics, and um, there are problems with monoculture. 
which the north doesn't have to deal with because they're doing mixed farming. You know, there's usually a lot of a, a lot of animals. Um, I mean, I'm I'm thinking for example, I spent a lot of um, as a child. I read Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House in the Prairie, all those kind of landscapes that we're familiar with in the north. Those are much later, I know, but but at the same time, Farmer Boy with Almanzo Wilder is all about you know a farm where they're all. Um, farming themselves, they're all, you know, cutting the crops, they're all ploughing, they're all, you know, doing the maple trees all together in a kind of community environment. And that's not the case in the South. There, there's a hierarchy. The planter is not going to be pulling the tobacco plants himself. So what's the difference then with Ireland and when these revolutionary ideas are being translated into landscape design by someone like Lord Edward Fitzgerald? Um, well, it, it's much closer to the French tradition. Um, and I, I think it's very interesting who goes to America first rather than who goes to Europe first. Um, so Edward Fitzgerald is a very cosmopolitan individual. You know, his family are very aristocratic, also in France, very well read. Um, a British officer, um, you know, has, has been to France essentially before he goes to the Caribbean or the United States. So that's his frame of reference. Um, and... Edward Fitzgerald is um, steeped in kind of the French revolutionary principles and is very, you know, the French Revolution liked the horizontal line. They liked planes. Um, they liked, you know, no hierarchy in the landscape. They, You know, the, the madder end, I suppose, of the French Revolution started to convert churches, the interior of churches into mountains. You know, they would put mount, literally papier-mâché mountains in place of the altar so that nature is overwhelming the divine. Um, so that's Edward Fitzgerald's tradition. Um, other Irish revolutionaries, um, so they, they would, Arthur O'Connor in particular, um, took a lot of inspiration from Rousseau. Um, and we have Rousseau's um, landscapes. There are two key ones, Ermenonville outside Paris and then um, Les Charmettes near Chambéry in what would have been the Savoie lands um, on the border kind of with Italy in the southeast. Um, of France. So a lot of revolutionaries went to visit Rousseau's landscapes to try and understand his texts, which were firmly, again, egalitarian, all about um, nature and, and man as a natural being. Um, and again, this principle of scale that, that you, as a, you know, as a revolutionary, you actually only need, you really need a landscape which is much smaller. Um, you don't want any hierarchy. Ideally, you do a lot of the labour yourself because that's symbolic of joining the people of not being an aristocrat. Um, so Edward Fitzgerald gardens in Kildare. You know, he's very concerned about flowers, what flowers he plants. He's very concerned about view and what he can see. Um, so all of these are indicators of your revolutionary perspective and how you behaved and what your behaviour expressed about you was very staged, very conscious. Um, and I, th I think that's interesting about the Irish revolutionaries, the degree to which they're in, uh, kind of enacting revolution on a daily basis in, in what they do. And that's drawing from Rousseau, who left a very clear description of what he did every day and how he basically enacted his philosophy in terms of going for a walk, you know, never going in a carriage. You have to walk on your your, your own feet, basically. Um, you, you don't have servants, you know, and you do everything yourself. So... The European, the United Irishmen are more in the French tradition than the American tradition. And it's less contradictory. And when Jean-Jacques Rousseau went to design his own place, what, what ideas did he bring to that? Well, he's very interesting. He starts out in the centre of Chambéry and he's uncomfortable because he's on a dark street. You know, he doesn't have any view. Um, he's living with Madame de Varens, who was his partner. And then they move to suburbia where he's a little bit happier. Um, but eventually he moves to outer suburbia to this kind of largest, largest kind of farmhouse, which has gardens around it. It's still there. It's a wonderful museum. Um, and it, it's the right scale of landscape. And it's also in that middle ground. You know, it's very middling. Um, and I think that's the ideal spatial context for revolutionaries, where it's neither too grand nor too impoverished. So you're somewhere in the middle and, and you can see the city. You need to have a connection with the city. You need to have a view of the city. So it takes aspects of the villa tradition um, and then and you have a view of the mountain, the town and the mountain. So Chambéry has this very careful cross section from this farmhouse back to the town, which is Chambéry. And then with the massif or the, the um, freedom of the mountains in the background. And he, he wrote these very important letters from the mountains, which are kind of 
written to um, kind of mon- monarchical France, you know, from the plank, which is kind of supporting... Switzerland was the plank that supported revolution in the centre um, of Europe for a long time. So Switzerland is very important symbolically and Rousseau is attached to Switzerland. And I think when Arthur O'Connor comes back, he writes letters from the mountains in Dublin. So he projects the same spatial relationship back to Ireland. So he stands in the Wicklow Mountains um, as a revolutionary and looks at Dublin and then writes about it in in this kind of distant, it's kind of an observe, observant distance that you, you have some distance so that you can kind of examine it in a, in a very careful way. And all revolutionaries, I think, are trying to get that distance, that comparative distance so they can compare their own country with other ideal countries and, and develop an argument essentially for saying we have to change everything. Um, so by travelling and comparing um, and viewing things differently and, and upsetting orders, that's how they generate an, a spatial argument for change. And just going back to Mount Vernon and that first visit that you made to it and the, the, the feeling that this didn't make sense and you know how, did you, how could you explain it? Is that really at the heart of the the problems with landscape design in any of these slave plantations or farms or buildings that they're trying to construct and design because there is that fundamental tension and contradiction between the principles of liberty and freedom and the reality of what they're doing. So they're never really going to make sense in the way that you understand it from a European perspective because at the heart there is that hypocrisy or or really, I suppose, a cancer well, villa landscape, I mean, it's very, very beautiful and it's very, very calculated. Um, and it's intended to impress upon people who visit it how beautiful it is and how its owners are entitled to that because they create such beauty, that they are entitled to be in a position which is effectively above everyone else. Um, and I suppose within architectural history and landscape history, we do um, look very closely at these villa landscapes because they are so highly designed, because they're they're so beautiful. They've usually had the best architects. They've had the best landscape architects. They're very um, considered. Um, and we use them, you know, always as models for teaching, for um, writing. So, so we know them very well. But so we haven't spent enough time really looking at at these efforts to make alternatives. And, and the key alternative is, strangely and ironically, the very humdrum suburb where everyone's house is approximately equal, approximately the same, um, and where everyone, as a child, and Rousseau would have very much written this in Emile, you know, that, that your spatial markers are formed as a child. And if you grow up in suburbia, where everyone everyone's houses can be, certainly in suburban Dublin, can be very much the same size, then you implicitly, spatially um, find the villa landscape where there's such a hierarchy going on between, certain, particularly in a slave plantation between the timber kind of one-roomed cabins. And we had cabins here in Ireland too. So some of the nomenclature is really interesting, I think. Um, you know, these totally miserable hovels. Um, the contrast between that and the very elegant, beautiful, you know, timber veranda southern mansion, which we're familiar with from, you know, Gone with the Wind, from all of those. That that harsh contrast is, if you pick away, if you really think about it, is, is very much, a, it's not about liberty and equality. It can't be um, because it, it decries the idea that everyone should have a designed environment that's equally beautiful or or suitable for them. And finally then, is there a, a favourite design in all of your travels? Um, I really like uh, Rousseau's garden. I mean, Rousseau obviously has a lot of contradictions, a lot of problems. Um, did many very despicable things, I suppose, particularly with his own children. But I just like the, the um, sheer kind of... He had such a force of will to create this strange suburban landscape in the middle ground outside Chambury. Um, so I would really encourage people to go and see it um, because it, it, it really was trying to break that hierarchy, that spatial hierarchy, which is everywhere in, in Europe. It's our legacy. Um, and he saw it in suburbia. And we, we tend to denigrate suburbia. We tend to say it's very, it's very boring. It's very humdrum. It's very, you know, monotonous. But at the same time, it is fundamentally, it, it has the seeds of equality within it. And he recognised that in the 1750s. And that was, that was an achievement. 
Well, it's an absolutely brilliant book because it makes us think about the revolutions in Ireland and the United States and even in France in a very different way by looking at the idea, the issue of landscape design. The book is called Landscape Design and Revolution in Ireland and the United States. It goes from 1688 to 1815, published in a beautiful hardback by Yale University Press. The author, Finola O'Kane. And Finola, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. The UK is grappling with big questions about belonging, equality and the legacies of empire and colonialism. They've been there before, embracing a broader history that encompasses all British people. A new book provides a better understanding of the past and gives many more people who fought for their future a voice in the present. The book tells the story of 10 remarkable movements, campaigns and organisations led by black and brown people across Britain from the 60s to the 80s that fought against racism and capitalism and impacted on life in Britain today. The book is called The Shoulders We Stand On, How Black and Brown People Fought for Change in the United Kingdom. It's published in hardback by Dialogue Books. and I'm delighted to welcome the author, Pretty Dylan, to the show tonight. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Patrick. Can we begin with the background to the book? How did you get the idea and how did you decide which movements to focus on? Sure, of course. Um, so I uh, actually got the idea seeing um, Angela Davis, uh, the um, the black um, American political activist, speak um, at an International Women's Day event. And she's she's all about movements. And she was talking about all of these examples from the US context that I had never heard of before. And I'm I'm a historian. Um, like there were um, the Montgomery bus boycott was largely driven by um, female domestic workers. And so I started researching those. And it just got me thinking that there must have been some sort of civil rights movement in the UK. There must have been anti-racist action. Um, and so I started scratching the surface. And lo and behold, there were loads. And not only were there lots of um, anti-racist movements, um, but also right where I grew up in, in West London, that was the home of a few uh, really key movements as well. And so I started digging digging deeper. And the movements I eventually settled on were the ones that were constantly referenced um, in in news articles or in academic articles or local history projects, but it was really difficult to actually find the detail of of what happened in those movements. And so I wanted to to fill in those gaps. And, you know, you mentioned there the Montgomery bus boycott, which would be very famous, but I don't know how famous it is in Britain. Certainly, I wasn't aware of it here in Ireland. The Bristol bus boycott from 1963. Yeah, exactly. We had our very own bus boycott uh, in the UK that, uh, yeah, that no one really likes to, to talk about. And, and that was a particularly interesting time because uh, in 1963, it was still legal to racially discriminate in the UK. There was no legislation on this uh, whatsoever. Um, and so many companies had uh, what was called a, a colour bar. Um, which meant that they refused to hire black or brown people, which they could do, or there was a quota system in place. And one of these uh, organizations and companies was the Bristol Omnibus Company. And they flat out refused to hire black or brown people as drivers or conductors on the buses. Um, they could be uh, maintenance workers, um, but they weren't allowed to, to interact with, with members of the public. Um, And then this was challenged by a um, small group of um, black men in in Bristol who called themselves the West Indian Development Council. And they took inspiration from across the pond and they called um, a boycott of the buses. And they blockaded roads around the bus station. They had uh, students from the university signing petitions and protesting. Um, They got national support from um, from people like Tony Benn, the Labour MP, who said that he'd stay off the buses even if he had to take a bike. Um, and they managed to change that policy. They got that policy uh, overturned. Uh, in fact, on the very same day that uh, Martin Luther King gave his famous uh, I Have a Dream speech, um, the, the Bristol Omnibus Company announced that uh, brown and black people would now be also hired as drivers and conductors. And why isn't it better remembered? I, I, I saw that, you know, Paul Stevenson, who was involved in it, he was made an OBE in 2009. So perhaps there is a belated recognition for some of the people involved. But how come it isn't 
how come there isn't a greater public awareness of it? Yeah, I ask myself this question constantly while researching uh, for this book, for, for every movement. <laughs> um, and I think now, luckily, I think in Bristol, the Bristol Boss Boycott is well known. Um, but I think that uh, in the UK, we have a tendency to stop talking about um, history as of 1945, as of the end end of the World War Two, And that's that was it. And we don't really touch anything more contemporary. Um and there's also the the wider um, issues of we don't like to talk about anything to do uh, uh, with empire. And this definitely leads into things like legacies of empire. Um, and I think we tend to avoid those topics that make us uncomfortable, because if we're talking about resistance to racism, we have to talk about the racism that existed. The trial of the Mangrove Nine is another fascinating one where you see people put on trial after a riot and in response to police targeting of, of, of again, people of different backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. And this wasn't the first time. The, Mangrove, the Mang- trial of the Mangrove Nine was in 1971. And this wasn't the first time that um, you had trials that were essentially between the black community and the police. Um, but this was a particularly um, kind of a key case uh, for, for the black community, because you had um, in 1970, a small group of, of people, about 150 people went uh, on a protest um, against police harassment of the Mangrove restaurant in Notting Hill in London. Um, and they were outnumbered uh, by the police. And many of the protesters were also members of um, black power groups. And the day ended with clashes between the protesters and the police. Um, And eventually these nine people were charged with all sorts of charges, including, as you mentioned, um, riot charges. And these nine saw this case basically as a way to um, that the state were trying to uh, dampen the, the radical black power movement. And so they were determined that this that this wouldn't happen. Um, and they did two radical actions during the trial itself. Um, one was calling for a jury of their peers. So appealing to the Magna Carta and calling for a jury of their peers to call for, for people from working class backgrounds, black and brown backgrounds, to um, to be on the jury because the jury uh, initially presented was, was all white. And then um, two of the defendants actually defended themselves. So Darkus Howe, who um, who had trained uh, as a lawyer, so he had some of the know-how and some of the rhetoric. And then Althea Jones-Lacroix, who was the leader of the Black Panther movement in the UK. And she was a, a biochemist. She was had, was a doctoral student in biochemistry. She didn't uh, have that background in, in law, but she also decided to, to defend herself. And the outcome of this uh, trial was um, was also pretty pretty seminal, um, because most of the charges were um, they were not guilty, um, and it was the first time that a judge had ever mentioned that there was indeed uh, the existence of racism within the police force, and this was so huge that. Um, there was uh, workings behind the scenes to try and get this statement retracted, which it which it never was. And in a way, it was a mistake bringing the prosecution because precisely because it did shine a light on that racial prejudice and on police brutality and on things that perhaps the establishment would have preferred weren't made public. Absolutely, absolutely. And then what you start to see is, um, for example, um, uh, about a decade later, in 1981, um, when there were uprisings that took place um, across the country uh, in 29 towns and cities, mostly um, uh, led by young people and young young black and brown people, um, instead of having these these trials uh, that would require juries and uh, therefore maybe have situations uh, like this, you find a lot of um, a lot of cases only being brought to magistrates' courts. So that they could kind of control the control the situation could be controlled a bit better um, instead of having these kind of big public spectacle trials. The Grunwick strike that took place that started in 1976 that's a fascinating insight into race relations as well and some of these prejudices and uh, the the courageous resistance to the prejudice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a bit of context about uh, 1976. Um, so by this point. 
Um, there was rising unemployment, um, all that kind of uh, joy and headiness of the 1960s was most definitely over. Uh, and 1976 in particular was, uh, was was a heat wave and there was a minister for drought um, in the UK um, to deal with melting roads and, and all sorts that was happening as well. And in this context, you had this um, photo processing factory. So um, if any of your listeners um, would send off their uh, camera films in envelopes and then they send them off in the post and then get um, get the photos back, uh, that was the Grunwick factory. They were uh, home to most of these uh, kinds of uh, uh, photo processing uh, operations. And it was very, very you know, hot work, um, long hours, and they employed mostly brown women. They were in nor- a little corner of northwest London, um, and there'd been a lot of settlement. So you had a lot of brown women who worked at this factory. Um, and the, a lot of these women had settled in northwest London from East Africa. And the context of East Africa is particularly important um, because in East Africa, these women lived very comfortable middle class lives. A lot of them uh, didn't do work outside of the home um, and they weren't used to being treated badly. And so they get to London, have to take any jobs that they can. And a lot of them end up in the Grunwick uh, factory and they are treated Awfully. Pregnant women aren't allowed to go to doctor's offices. There's compulsory overtime. People aren't allowed to go to the toilet. There's a constant threat of being fired. And one day in this long, hot summer of 1976, um, one of the workers, Jayabin Desai, um, she quits. She stands up and she says, OK, that's it. I've had enough. Um, this, is, this is over. And she storms out um, and a few people join her. And then by uh, by the that was on the Friday, and by the Monday, um, about a hundred, just over a hundred people had also joined um, joined this strike that she had called. Um, this is still only about twenty percent of the workforce, um, and they they joined a union. They wanted to unionize uh, because the factory wouldn't let them unionize, um, and they said, "Okay, well, we're only twenty percent of the workforce. Uh, we need we need some more support here." And so they started to call on on uh, other unions. Um, and other workers. And soon they were joined by workers from all over the country. They went on tour and they spoke in foundries and mills and factories and docks, and they rallied the support of the nation's working class. Um, In 1977, there was this day of action and 20,000 people came from around the country to join them in this sleepy little neighborhood um, in Northwest London. Um, to to protest this factory. And this was quite phenomenal because before that, there wasn't much support from the trade unions um, for brown women. Um, as we've seen with the Bristol bus boycott a few, you know, a few years earlier, that um, often like there was a lot of hostility and not much support towards um, black and brown people who um, workers. And so it was really, really uh, a fascinating case in, in showing how the nation's working class would rally behind these brown women um, and showing that actually these brown women weren't as as meek as uh, as the stereotypes had painted them out to be. But ultimately, did it end in failure? Certainly those on the right wing and those in the the right of the Conservative Party saw the ending of the of the strike as a victory for them. Absolutely. So unfortunately, two long years of striking um, and they did not get union recognition um, and that all the workers had been had been fired. And but there's it was very interesting. And a lot of um, what Jabin decided said afterwards, she said that uh, she's not sure if the Labour Party learned much from the strike, but that the Conservatives certainly did. Um, because uh, Margaret Thatcher was looking very closely at the strike um, and she outlawed certain techniques that were used during the strike, such as this secondary picketing, um, which um, would have made illegal these 20,000 people being on the picket line um, at Grunwick. But it's interesting because this is now also very much celebrated um, within the trade union movement. Um, say, people say that you, you'll never lose um, a strike like, like Runwick um, because of these kinds of ripple effects that it, that it had in, in showing this solidarity um, and trade unions had to start taking black and brown people seriously. I, mean, I think 
it's um, the truth lies somewhere in between in terms of um, how how successful it was. It wasn't. It was a failure in its initial aims, but um, and it certainly is probably overly celebrated by the trade union movement, who weren't always always a hundred percent behind it either. Um, but the truth is probably somewhere in between. The book is a very hopeful book, and there is lots of optimism in it. But I wonder how you felt when a few weeks ago the British Home Secretary Suella Braverman talked about how gave a very significant speech where she talked about how multiculturalism in Britain had failed, and that didn't seem to contain the same hope and optimism that you that you find in in this book <laughs> no and that's um one of the reasons i i wrote this book actually is to um provide some much needed hope in these uh, quite dark times um because we're not going to find the answers uh in our in our current political system um and I think there's a few things, though, to take from this time that I find particularly hopeful. And one of them is the solidarity, um, both within communities and between communities. And that's the reason why it includes both black and brown people, because they can't really be separated at this time. Um, members of the executive committee of the British Black Panthers were were brown. Um, my my front cover, I, I encourage you to go, go and Google <laughs> to see the cover of the book, uh, because there's a photo of um, of uh, a black woman, Barbara Beast, um, in, in the east end of London, supporting um, a march of um, young Bengalis there. And I think it's a perfect summation um, of, of the book. And there was a real, real solidarity between communities um, that I think can provide us with um, some of that that hope um, that we're definitely not going to be getting from our political leadership. It's interesting to see that there were significant women involved in all of these movements and that women played a major part in the struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, I mean, the cut, there's even more for sure that I definitely even couldn't cover. Um, there's lots that the historical record won't hold. I mean, you had women who um, who are named and who are uh, on the front lines, who are protests and marches and uh, going door to door. Um, uh, people I've mentioned like Barbara B, Sophia Jones, the Quran, Jay Ben Desai and, and many more. Um, people like Stella Dadsey, who um, was one of the founders of um, the Organization of Women of uh, Asian and African Descent. Um, but there were also so many women who... Um, who did all the work behind the scenes, who will never be named. But it's really important to recognize uh, their contribution to um, to resistance movements as well. They they did the childcare. Um, they uh, made phone calls. They even would have cooked for people having meetings at their house. And all of this is really important work that um, I think is often left uh, out of the historical record. So what lessons do you think we can learn for today? And... How can these movements maybe inspire meaningful change in the present, given that it is as perhaps as bleak and as dark as you've as you've mentioned? <laughs> yeah, I think um, apart from solidarity, I think the other thing is to focus on the bigger picture. Um, I think since uh, George Floyd's murder in, in 2020, there's been a lot of discussion about what people can do to change themselves and um, changing the, the hearts and minds of individuals, um, which is necessary and, and great to those conversations to have. But what we can learn from these movements uh, from the 60s to 80s is that they weren't concerned about individuals. They weren't trying to um, change the, the individual minds of police officers, for example. They were focusing on the bigger picture um, of uh, institutional racism, of why the police force exists as it does to start with. And so I think this focus on the bigger picture is something we can definitely um, keep in mind, that we, we shouldn't focus necessarily just on representation politics and the individuals in power, but, but look at the kind of system overall. Very good. Well, it's a fascinating new book. It's called The Shoulders We Stand On, How Black and Brown People Fought for Change in the United Kingdom, published in hardback by Dialogue Books. The author is Pretty Dylan. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. Nationalists think about the economy and this thinking matters once nationalists hold political power. Many nationalists seek to limit global exchange, but others prioritise economic development. The potential conflict between these two goals shapes nationalist policy making. 
drawing on historical case studies from 30 countries, from the American Revolution to the rise of China, a new book paints a broad panorama of economic nationalism over the past 250 years, and it explains why such thinking has become influential despite the internal contradictions and checkered record of many nationalist policymakers. The book is called The Nationalist Dilemma, A Global History of Economic Nationalism, 1776 to the Present. It's published in hardback by Cambridge University Press. And I'm delighted to welcome the author back to the show tonight, Marvin Zusa. Uh, Marvin, you're very welcome back. It's a pleasure being on here. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's a fascinating book and it's one that I was engaging. I was there uh, when you were launching it in, in Trinity. And well, let's start with how the book starts. It starts with Steve Bannon in the White House only a few weeks after Donald Trump has has become president and taken office. And talk to me about what economic nationalism meant for Bannon and Trump. Yeah, so I think this uh, was a very interesting moment because basically Bannon, he stands up in front of the press and he says, okay, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to do economic nationalism, right? And that kind of creates some confusion among the journalists who are present because they think, okay, what is economic nationalism, right? So, you know, they do a quick Google search and they don't actually find that much. So then they say, well, it's probably just something Bannon made up. Right? Now, what I say in the book is that that is not actually the case, right? That economic nationalism is a real concept. It has historically been very influential. And although we may disagree with many of its premises and many of its implications, it is nonetheless important to take this thinking seriously in order to understand where it comes from, how nationalists think about the economy. So what did it mean for Steve Bannon and for Donald Trump? I think for for Donald Trump, it uh, primarily he positioned himself quite consciously in a long line of American economic nationalist thinkers. So, kind of harking back to uh, people such as Hamilton, um, even uh, Lincoln himself as well, and saying, "Well, you know, those people they erected tariffs to safeguard the national economy. They tried to accelerate domestic." national investment. And this is something that we should be doing too. And this kind of, I think, is interesting because it shows that, again, economic nationalists like to see themselves in a long line of of, of thinkers. And what's fascinating then is, of course, Joe Biden wins the election in 2020 and and succeeds him as president. But there isn't a radical shift in uh, the position that perhaps it's not going to be popular if Biden uh, reverses course entirely because elements of this economic nationalism continue. Exactly. So I think what Trump has really done is he has shifted the parameters of the debate in the United States, right? So you can see that again from the first year of the administration when Bannon makes these comments about economic nationalism, nobody takes it seriously. I think in the end, Trump has managed to to shift the debate in the United States because we see then that by the time of the next election, everybody is talking protectionism. Even the Democrats, many Democrats are. And Joe Biden, in my opinion, is not a dyed-in-the-wool protectionist. He has previously in his long career never really stood out as a protectionist. But he had to ride this, this wave, this groundswell of nationalist thinking. And there were some, of course, like, for example, Elizabeth Warren, who did this uh, in a much more structured and, and conscious way, right? So she issued a number of policy proposals that were very clearly labeled by herself as economic patriotism from, from a more left-wing perspective, certainly, than, than Trump's proposals were. But no, the dividing line between economic nationalism, economic patriotism is, of course, very, very thin. And what's extraordinary is that although these are economic principles and, and, and policies and beliefs. It's tied into wider political concerns and prejudices about global elites and globalism and uh, outsiders coming in and taking our jobs or, or that we're being uh, destroyed by other countries or taken advantage of. So it really ties into a, a global worldview as well. Yes. Yeah, so, of course, it's important to recognise that nationalists don't just react against the global economy. They have domestic concerns as well. And this is very clearly the case with Trump, that at the core of his his, his approach to, to economic affairs, the, the way that, that he posited it, was that, well, you know, globalization is bad, not so much because it makes the American economy weak, although that was certainly an important part of it, but also because it gives power to 
domestic elites who are not the real Americans. And this is, again, another strain of thinking that you see in many, many historical cases. So the word populism is, of course, very old, but some of the most famous populist politicians came from developing countries in the early post-war period. If we think about um, Perón in Argentina in the late 40s and uh, early 50s, if we think about uh, Nasser in Egypt, um, in the 60s, they had very similar concerns about, well, we need to check globalization because globalization privileges domestic elites. Why does it do so? Well, because those domestic elites, they have through better access to capital, through better education and networks, etc., they have better access to the opportunities that the global economy offers. They get rich the ordinary Americans, Egyptians, Ar Argentinians do not. Therefore, we need to cut off our links with the global economy in order to decrease this internal inequality and kind of make the nation, as it were, whole again. And of course, it isn't always a coherent and co consistent uh, set of beliefs as well. And the book really explores the, the contradictions and the tensions because sometimes economic nationalists are all for protectionism, but other times they believe that they need to expand the economy, they need to, to grow it, and they're all on for economic development. Exactly. So this is really, I think, the core contradiction that's at the heart of, of nationalist thinking about the economy. This idea that kind of economic nationalists, they often want to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. They want development, but they also want isolation. And this is, of course, a problem, especially if you are a small, poor economy at the periphery of the world economy. Right. So this is the case for many post-colonial nations Think about uh, Ghana or Tanzania after decolonization in the 1960s. It's even the case for the United States in the late 18th century, right? And you see this conflict playing out very much in debates at the time in the early US that you have people like Hamilton who say, well, you know, we would like a bit of protection. Right, to nurture domestic industries and grow this industrial base that nationalists really, really cherish, right? because industry equals national power equals military might, etc. But then at the same time, Hel Hamilton is quite realistic and is quite open that, well, if we want to develop as, you know, at that time still a small capital scarce economy with not many skilled workers, we actually need openness to foreign investment and we may even need the former colonial power Britain to actually uh, help us. And therefore, this kind of tempers, in a way, the, their isolationist instincts. But then you, of course, have other nationalists who are not willing to compromise so much and who then say, well, you know, you're actually selling out the nation by cozying up to Britain or to foreigners, and we actually need to be stricter about our isolationism. And this then gives rise to what I think is often underestimated, the fact that there is a lot of conflict between different nationalist positions on the economy, right? between those who privilege expansion, growth, and those who tend to privilege isolation. Well, it's a brilliant new book called The Nationalist Dilemma, A Global History of Economic Nationalism, 1776 to the Present. It's published in hardback by Cambridge University Press. The author is Marvin Zusa. And Marvin, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night. <laughs>